Um, as <clears throat> Pastor Joseph preached last week on these opening chapters, he preached on um, Jesus coming after his resurrection and spending time with his disciples, his apostles. Um, and, and then ultimately he, he rose uh, in his ascension back up to the heavens. And so then the disciples seemed like they were left uh, somewhat empty-handed, not knowing how to proceed, but he left them a promise to wait, uh, a promise to wait eagerly, and that uh, they would receive, as he had promised when he was on the earth, when he was still alive, uh, the helper, uh, the Holy Spirit to come. So that's where we find ourselves in this section of chapter 1 of Acts. Let me read it for us, and as is custom here, if you would respond with thanks at the end of it. Acts chapter 1. Starting in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Al-Kildama, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord... Who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, in the mid-90s, there was a movie called The First Night. Anybody heard of this movie? It starred Sean Connery uh, and Richard Gere, and it, it was a, an adaptation of the King Arthur story, King Arthur and the, the Knights of the Round Table. And there is, um, Richard Gere plays Lancelot, and, and Sean Connery plays King Arthur, and it's a story of King Arthur trying to court uh, Guinevere, uh, but there's a lot of turmoil and war happening in the neighboring towns, some of these towns that Guinevere is from. <clears throat> and so in, a, in a, an attempt to kind of reconcile with the villain of this story that is uh, Prince Malignant, King Arthur invites him to the Knights of the Round Table to have this discussion. Uh, and there, as majestically as it is portrayed, it's this really, it's literally a round table. Uh, and it's, it's got a place for each of the knights' sword, 
So there's <clears throat> 13 places there, 12 knights of King Arthur and King Arthur himself, coincidentally 12 here as well. And as they're meeting, there's one empty space at the table, one sword that is missing that is belonged to a knight of the round table. And when the villain comes, Prince Malignant, he comes and he, to have this discussion with Arthur, he places his sword down on the table. And the other knights are furious. How dare you place your place there? But what they didn't re realize was that before he was the villain, Prince Malignant was one of the knights of the round table. And he thought he still deserved his place at the table. His seat was vacated for a number of years while he went astray. As we look at this narrative of the, uh, of the book of Acts, it may have been tossed aside in our minds, <clears throat> but this narrative of replacing Judas Iscariot, whom we know as the one who portrayed Jesus, as we were looking at investigating this, this morning, as we closing out the Gospel of Matthew, as Jesus uh, hones in and closes in on the passion and, and being crucified, it is Judas Iscariot, his disciple, his dear friend, who decided to betray him and offer him up to the chief priests. And after his, his guilt, his, his death, his seat was remained vacated. And so this narrative here in Acts fills in a little bit about what happened to that seat. So as we do that, we'll look at a couple of points in what God is trying to show us. The first point is the person of Judas. What was his story and what was this word of warning that we receive? Secondly is Matthias. What is the events and circumstances that led Matthias to fill that seat? And lastly, how does this apply to us? What is a point of application? So Judas, Matthias, and then a quick point of application. As we consider Judas and as we situa situate ourselves in this passage, the disciples, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, are coming down from the Mount of Olives. And that might seem like a familiar setting for us as we've spent the last couple of weeks in the morning service going through a series of chapters in the Gospel of Matthew called the Olivet Discourse. So it's the very place that Jesus, right before he was crucified, spent some intimate time with his disciples to teach them about how he would return, about what the, the judgment would look like, about what the last days would look like. So it's, it's a fitting place for them to be coming down from the Mount of Olives after Jesus was resurrected, and he spent 40 days continuing to teach. It's as if, though, Jesus picked up right where he left off. He was teaching them about the last days, about this helper that is to come, about some other teachings that he had before he ascended into heaven. So the disciples are coming down from this mountain, equipped with the teaching again of their Lord and Savior after he had ascended, <clears throat> and, and they enter into this, their own time of preparation, because as Pastor Joseph was preaching last week, the, Jesus had commanded them to wait, to stay in Jerusalem, to see uh, his ministry and his work, his kingdom being expanded, to wait the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, as, as, he, as he promised. And so then as they're waiting, uh, Peter, in, in our narrative tonight, rises up to speak, and he speaks on Judas's betrayal. Now, if you imagine the, the crucifixion having happened, and one of their dear friends, one of the twelve, having committed this heinous betrayal um, and, and having committed suicide, it seems pretty peculiar that Peter would bring this up at a time like this, at a time that they were preparing for their own ministry, about doing great things moving forward, Peter brings up a sore point, a point of pain in their past. 
And so in the parenthetical notes listed here in the book of Acts, it describes what happened to Judas after Jesus was crucified. And the only other time, place in the Bible that, that uh, describes this account is also in the Gospel of Matthew, right? We read that Judas, out of his own guilt, goes back to the chief priests and he tries to return the 30 pieces of silver that they paid him to betray Jesus. And the chief priests refuse to take that payment and out of his own guilt, according to the Gospel of Matthew, Judas hangs himself in a field, the field that is named also here, uh, the, the field of blood. And here in the book of Acts, it, it gets into a little bit away from Judas's perspective of this and, and a little bit more of the, the gory detail of what happened to him. And we don't necessarily have to see these things as, uh, as discrepancies or as different accounts, but two perspectives of the same account that out of his guilt, Judas was, did commit suicide and that he spilled his blood, that his entrails were hanging out in a land that they deemed the field of blood. Now again, why did Peter go through the lengths of, of bringing up this point, this narrative? And simply put, it was to highlight God's sovereignty. In a time where Jesus had commanded them to wait, await the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter brings up this sore point, this disdain for them to highlight God's sovereignty. Now, first of all, it's also a warning for us. Rather than seeing, you know, trying to nitpick at the discrepancies of, of how Judas' life ended, it's a warning for us as readers today, now, in the 21st century, uh, against divine judgment. This is a very vivid picture of what it looks like of a life lived outside of a relationship with God. Now, I'm not saying that if we kind of forfeit our faith that this very uh, outcome and result is promised to us, but it is symbolic, it could be a metaphor, maybe even literal at times, that when we forfeit our lives for the seeming gain of, of ourself, of our own priorities and agenda, it actually leaves you, leaves me, leaves us utterly decimated. This is a warning for us, a life perceived to pursue money, power, relationships, our own success, more over and above our relationship with God, can only leave us decimated. Now, this is a strong word of warning. I'm not much of a fire and brimstone preacher, but the temptation is not very exclusive to those outside the church. It's not as though I'm saying to the people outside of this room and outside this building, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so your life doesn't have to look like this, but it's also a word of warning for those of us who come week in, week out, to church, are involved or heavily involved, a word of warning to myself as somebody who's preaching the very word of God, that this temptation is not mutually exclusive to non-Christians. Consider who Judas was. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of his closest friends. Imagine the number of miracles that Judas must have witnessed while he was walking with Jesus. Imagine all of the sermons that he sat through and listened to and the teachings of Jesus that he tried to let soak in. Imagine the prayer meetings that he must have participated while being a disciple of Jesus. Imagine the interactions that he had with the poor, the needy, the imprisoned, the sick, the women, the children. He lived a good part of his life, or he lived a part of his life having witnessed the ministry of Jesus Christ, and yet he still came to a place 
where he chose himself over Jesus. So this divine warning, this, this warning of what your life would look like outside of a life with God is not just for those who haven't heard the gospel yet. It's not just for that coworker or neighbor who, who, we, who we think is far off from, from receiving Jesus, but it's to us. It's to you and me. It's for those who, who may be walking with Jesus along with him, right alongside these things. It's a sobering reminder for us to assess our own hearts in this relationship with God and not just to assess the results of what we're able to do. The temptation of sin, of the enemy, of our own flesh is such that our outwardly actions cannot save us. My outwardly actions cannot save me, not those alone, because it didn't save Judas. It's a sobering reminder for us to be mindful of what our own price is, what, what, is, what are our 30 pieces of silver, and how are we prioritizing that over God himself? Yes, it's a stern warning, but I think more importantly, Peter brings up the narrative of Judas in this time of expectant waiting and preparation, primarily to highlight God's sovereignty. And I know that because that's what he does. You know, and as heinous as Judas's portrayal was, we have to acknowledge that it was still within God's sovereignty. It's not as though after Judas <clears throat> collected his money and gave the chief priests the information they wanted, as, as though God said, whoa, where did that come from? Judas, you were with me this whole time. How could you do this? But God saw this from the beginning of time. He saw Judas's betrayal. And what Peter is trying to do is trying to highlight God's sovereignty, as he says, as Scripture had to be fulfilled. And then he goes on <clears throat> in verses 20 to quote Scripture itself. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, <clears throat> may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. Peter's highlighting here the, the very psalm that we've been reading through in our liturgy tonight in Psalm 69, verse 25 where Judas' betrayal was divinely inspired by David, that the power of the Holy Spirit was with David when he wrote these words, fully knowing that this is something that Judas would do. Now, what does that mean for us? Simply put, it's to say that failure is a part of God's plan. That when you think about your own life, when you think about trying to be the best version of yourself, having everything put together, run everything efficiently and productively, please know that it's not going to work out the way that you plan to. But failure is still a part of God's gracious sovereignty. Some of you may be sitting here tonight, I've had a really hard day, or this week was really a doozy, or I've been in a really long season where I've been discouraged. I can't really pinpoint what it is, or I just have this nagging feeling that, that God isn't there. Maybe God's not listening to some of the things that I have to say, that nothing is going right. It's tempting to think and believe and, and make these character assassinations of God and who He is, but consider the massive amount of failure and betrayal that Jesus, Jesus experienced Himself. Yes, with Judas, but also with Peter. 
the very representative of the one trying to prepare the disciples and his friends, his denying of Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion. Think of the massive betrayal and doubt and fear all along the way that Jesus himself experienced and endured in his own life. Now imagine him going through all of that knowing that this was a part of the plan. So we come gathered as a church even now in 2023 Not to say that we believe in a God who's going to promise you. I'm not up here to say that we believe in a God who's going to promise you a pain-free life. The good life if you just believe that everything will be provided for you. But we're here to preach about a God who in the midst of pain promises his presence and salvation. That in spite of all the failures, all of the absences or the seeming absences... That failure is still a part of God's sovereignty. And we can come, gather to sing, to praise, to confess all of these things, knowing that God knows what pain is like. God knows your pain. And God went through excruciating pain so that we can ultimately come to a place where all things would be restored. That's the gospel, friends. And so this, this mentioning of Judas is very strategic. Peter does it for a reason. It's to highlight that God's sovereignty is still very present. So then as a group, as Jesus' merry bandwagon continues into this mission, there's still that vacancy. There's still an empty seat at the table. And and they, they seek to fill it again because Peter quotes, this time Psalm 109, let another take his office. And so continuing in this theme of God's sovereignty, Peter quotes a psalm where wicked men, when found guilty, would be replaced. He says so himself that, that Judas was aligned with us, that he was allotted with us in this ministry. So we need to replace him moving forward. Now it's a peculiar question of, of why they decided to replace Judas, simply because there were other tales of apostles uh, being martyred and, and falling off further down in the, in the book of Acts and, the, and in the Bible. So why specifically Judas? And it's the reason why he quotes Psalm 109 is that the wicked, those who found guilty, those in betrayal would be replaced, that their office would be replaced. Not those who, who sought to seek God's glory, but as they continue on in this mission, <clears throat> they do so seeking to fill this seat. And a little more about that in a little bit. And so then, in order to fill the seat, What are the qualifications? So Peter continues in verses 21 and 22. It has to be someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus himself, to his ministry, someone who walked among them in their ministry, in their work, and intimately knew their mission, their approach, the culture of what gospel living was for, and to witness the full scope of it, all the way from the baptism of John through the resurrection. So these are the qualifications And these are the qualifications of what it means to be an apostle that we get from the Word of God. And so they they come up with two choices, two people. First is Joseph, also called Barsabbas, or Justice. Uh, Justice, if you may have deduced, means the just. And Barsabbas, translated as the son of the Sabbath. And so as as, as Luke is, is stating in the text, and they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas, the son of the Sabbath, and also called Justice. Joseph is our guy, right? Seems to be building up with all these qualifiers. And then there's Matthias. 
right? Joseph, son of Sabbath, son of rest, son of God's peace and justice, and Matthias. And as is a tendency for God to do, he, he tends to uh, understand and know where our confidence lies and have, and have us lead in, in weakness. But it, again, it, for us, highlights God's sovereignty, not our own qualifications, not our characteristics, not what makes us the best candidate moving forward. It wasn't the character of Matthias that had him to be more qualified over Joseph, but it's simply because God chose him. <clears throat> and so they do this by casting lots. And it's, uh, some of the commentators have, have speculated that they, they took a bunch of stones and they marked them. One would, would, would have been for Joseph and one for Matthias. And when they shook it up and it came out, uh, the one for Matthias came out. Now it could be argued, why did the apostles leave the choice of filling the seat? filling this apostleship for their ministry moving forward to the building of the early church to a gamble? Why, why leave it to a coin flip? It seems absurd. And what it's meant to do is, again, continue the sovereignty of God, continue to highlight the sovereignty of God. Remember that this, the, the chapter after this is when Pentecost happens. They haven't yet received the Holy Spirit so they're resorting to some Old Testament measures of trying to seek the dependence on God. And so what Luke is trying to highlight here is it wasn't so much that they were willing to take a gamble on it, but they were willing to let God decide. Because if it were up to them, Joseph was probably their choice, the son of the Sabbath, the just. But they, they left their, their decision up to the Lord himself. Uh, as a quick sidebar and a word of warning, it's not a 21st, 21st century translation to, to leave things to gambling or to chance or to flipping a coin. As we know in the rest of the New Testament, there's no other mention or explication that Paul gives on how to cast lots and, and what that actually means. But we now have the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, in, in discernment, in, in reading the Word of God to know how to make our decisions. So I thought I would put that out there. I'm not condoning gambling by any means. Um, but there's one also very unique thing to note here. Again, to why replace Judas? Why complete this table? Why fill out the 12 apostles again? Because later on, we'll have the apostles uh, Paul and Barnabas and, and others who would join in this apostleship, this messengership of Jesus. <clears throat> and it's significant here that they do cast lots. And in my discernment, in my study of this passage over the week, um, what I believe that God was trying to do as they replaced Judas with Matthias was not only to fill his seat, not only to redeem this betrayal and disdain that the apostles had, but it was to help the readers to, readers to see, specifically the Jewish readers to see, that God was coming to renew his inheritance for the people. Now, how do I know that is, well, the, 12, the number 12 and the disciples was always significant because of the 12 tribes of Israel. The covenant that God made with his people was to the nation of Israel, was to all 12 tribes, and that through the conquest that God would provide for them an inheritance in the land of Canaan. And the other time, not the only other time, but another time that the God has the, the Old Testament people and Joshua cast lots was to figure out how to divide up the land in Canaan. So what I believe that, that Luke was doing here was pointing to 
God trying to restore and reconstituting the new Israel to bring about restoration, to bring about wholeness, to bring about reconciliation for everything that they saw as failures to, to bring about this new Israel. And a couple of verses prior in verse 6, the disciples specifically asked, right before Jesus goes up, he says, are you coming to restore new Israel? And this is God's way of saying, yes, I am, but in my time. I'm restoring all of the tribes, both within the Jewish Christians, but to the ends of the earth as well. As we'll see later in the books with the conversion of Paul and his ministry to the Gentiles, it wasn't just about the, the Jewish um, uh, ethnic people, but those who would place their faith in this very sovereign God. So this restoring, this filling of this vacant seat with Matthias, again, this is the only other time in the book of Acts that Matthias is mentioned. He's not mentioned again in the book, so it wasn't, surely it wasn't anything about what he did or his characteristics, but it was the sovereignty of God to say, I am coming to restore new Israel, to restore you, to restore my people, and I will do it in the grace of my own sovereignty. So then, to close out, what does that mean for us? As we read this narrative, as we read the discrepancies of the, the perspectives and the accounts and, and the ins and outs of apostolic structure and protocol, what does that mean for us? Well, the, the key thing to note is that in everything that the apostles did, specifically in this passage and beyond, it was undergirded by prayer. That when we look at the text right after the ascension of Jesus and they're coming down from the Mount of Olives, <clears throat> they gather together. In uh, where it says they went up to the upper room, and for us as readers, that's supposed to highlight the upper, the very upper room that Jesus spent in the Last Supper. As we read the Gospel of John, it's it's the time where Jesus shared with us, "I am the truth and the life. I am the resurrection," and he he prays the high priestly prayer. Some of the passages that I printed for you in the additional scripture that Jesus prays for the sake of those that God had called to Himself. So even the very geographic location, it may not have been the very room that Jesus spent the Last Supper, that's debated among scholars, but it is supposed to key to us this time of teaching and prayer that the Lord had prepared the apostles and the disciples to do before he left. And so as they're coming down from the Mount of Olives, it says in the text, all these, that is all the disciples, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. With his departing commandment to the disciples to be to wait, to wait for the power of the Spirit, the disciples took that hand in hand to mean wait in prayer. Not just wait idly by, waiting for some magic to come and appear and for something to happen, but they waited fervently in prayer. And as right before they were picking Matthias and casting these lots, before uh, tossing these stones, they, they prayed, verse 24, they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. The, the hallmark of the early church is that everything was undergirded in the power of prayer. Not just prayer for the sake of praying, as we said before, Judas was probably involved in a ton of prayer over the course of his ministry. But what does expectant prayer look like? What does fervent, unifying prayer look like? What does a prayer 
undergirded in this relationship we have with our Lord and Savior, our Heavenly Father, look like if we know that He will provide abundantly for us? Uh, One thing that I like to do with my kids whenever we're out, whether at a restaurant or at the library, is I love to have them go forth on their own to ask for something themselves. Like if they want something, if they want a a sticker from the cashier or if they want something else uh, from one of the employees, I love to have them go forward and ask it for themselves. I'm trying to build up their own character and their confidence. And truth be told, my kids hate it. They look at me and they're like, why? Can't you just ask for me? And in, in my own ego and my agenda, it's like, no, this is good for you. I am building your character. Years down the road, you're going to thank me. And so when, ironically, what I thought I was doing in teaching my kids a lesson is I learned the other week is that they were teaching me a lesson. There's a reason why they're uncomfortable. There's a reason why they don't want to go up to a complete stranger to ask for a sticker or an extra serving of fries or whatever it is, right? Because they don't know that person. They don't know how that person will respond. What if they reject me? What if they laugh at me or yell at me? I don't know how they're going to respond. But dad, I have this access with you. I can come to you. I can ask you silly things. I can, I can do it in a posture that is fully and vulnerably me. Because I know I have that trust, I have that access, that in this sense of unity, this fervency that I have, I trust you. And so I was being taught in that moment that that's the very access that we have with God. If, if, if the God that you believe is one where you were left at the end of the day with a question mark, is God really there? Is he listening to me? Does he not see this season of life that I'm going through that's really difficult full of failures, one after the other? Or is this a God to say, I'm going through a really tough time right now, but I know who God is. I know who the Lord of Yahweh, of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, of this covenant God, this faithful, loving, cherishing God, that in the midst of my pain and heartache and difficult circumstances, I know that this is the very God who is still with me and present with me because that and so much more is what he endured on the cross for my sake so that I can be in this access, this relationship with him. That's the Lord and Savior that I believe in. So who is your God? Who is Jesus to you? Is it this this God who is going to waver dependent on how you act and how you perform? Or is it the very sovereign God who, in the midst of betrayal and pain and failures, is still with you, is still walking with you, and is about to walk with these apostles into the bursting of his church, the church that we sit in today?